Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. In the past several episodes of True Blue Crime have been pretty heavy from an emotional standpoint, and I felt it was time to step away from the world of death and cover a crime that not only affected a lot of people, but has been repeated to various degrees many times since its inception. But before we get into the episode, let's quick cover the business side of things. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcasts are up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Defrauding someone or a business out of money is not a new concept. The first recorded fraud in history occurred in 300 BC in ancient Greece. A very early version of insurance, known as a bottomry, was essentially a loan that a merchant could take out for the value of their ship, in case it sank to the bottom of the ocean. If the boat survived the voyage, the loan would be paid back with some interest that was paid out of the profits from the sales of the goods. However, if the boat sank during the voyage, the boat owner could recoup their losses using the loan. A merchant named Hegestratos saw an opportunity to make some easy money, and after he was consigned to deliver a load of grain with his boat, he devised a plan. He sold the grain to a different buyer and sailed his empty boat across the sea, and then started to sink his boat. His crew caught on to the scam and confronted their boss, who was said to have jumped ship and drowned before he could be brought to justice. Throughout history, there have always been people willing to risk punishment and even death to make money illegally. In 1920, an Italian immigrant who had arrived in America with dreams of making it big saw an opportunity to make money. While his original plan wasn't illegal, his scheme to create the investment money he needed was. His money-making scheme became famous and is still duplicated over a hundred years later. This is the story of the birth of the Ponzi scheme. Carlo Pietro Giovanni Guglielmo Tobaldo Ponzi, better known as Charles Ponzi, was born on March 3, 1882 in Lugo, Italy. While his family had once held wealthy titles in the country, by the time he was a teenager, almost all of his family fortune had been spent. He took what little money he had and enrolled at the University of Rome and was a less than stellar student. He failed many classes and after four years he had no degree, he was broke and needed a change of scenery. He used most of the last of his money to buy a ticket for a cross-Atlantic voyage that would land him in Boston, Massachusetts. He arrived on November 15, 1903 with just $2.50 in his pocket. He lost over $200 he had been given by his mother by playing cards and drinking on the multi-week trip. Charles had expected to land in America and be met with gold-lined streets and money for the taking. Instead, he found himself walking in mud. His saving grace was a prepaid train ticket out of Boston. His mother knew her son would lose all his money and didn't want him to be stranded on arrival in America. So real quick break here. It's, that's a real quick summary of 
Charles Ponzi, and yes, I will refer to him as Charles and not by his full name throughout the rest of this podcast. Definitely seems like Charles is the poster child for financial irresponsibility. Whether it was his family spending their fortune, whether it was him spending what little money that he had, it was said that his mother purchased this prepaid train ticket because he'd been on so many trips before where he ran out of money and ended up being stranded and the family had to figure out ways to get him money so that he could either return from the trip or continue on his voyages. So basically, he's so financially irresponsible that despite his mother giving him this money to start this life in America, she pretty much knew that on arrival to America, he would have nothing left and prepaid for this train ticket. So again, this is just kind of a preview of how financially irresponsible Charles Ponzi was. The prepaid ticket got him from Boston to New York, where he stood a fighting chance at finding a job as a non-English speaking Italian. The problem was Charles was not a strong man. In fact, even he considered himself too weak for manual labor. With no formal education and an unwillingness to work hard for money, he bounced from job to job during his first four years in America and eventually Canada. And a lot of this I got from his autobiography, which you can find online. And it's interesting for two things. One is it's him telling the story. So I had to confirm a lot of the details with what is out there known about Charles Ponzi. But second, he was... I guess very candid is the best way to put it, that he was just not cut out to be an actual working person. He said most of these jobs that he would work at, uh, he would either be fired from or he would quit before he was fired from the job. Uh, Basically, it just sounds like he's probably one of those worst employees ever. If there was picture frames for that instead of employee of the month, if you could hang up a frame for your worst employee ever, I'm guessing it sounds like Charles would be on a lot of walls of businesses back in 1903 to 1907 in the New York area. But it was in Montreal that he landed his first banking job. Charles met a man named Luis Zerosi, and the Italian banker was running a land office business with investment options. The bank side of the business promised a 6% return on investment, more than double any other bank was offering at the time, in Canada, which led to rapid growth. What Charles didn't know was Lewis was running a low-level pyramid scheme, one Charles would copy at a much higher level later in his life. And so while I say that Charles Ponzi is kind of the birth of this Ponzi scheme, the pyramid scheme has actually been around for a long time. And basically the way the pyramid scheme works and the way that even his buddy Lewis was running his pyramid scheme was that you take money in from initial investors promising them a higher than normal return rate that's not a sustainable return rate and what you but you pay them out on it with money from more investors so basically your person at the very top of the pyramid those initial investors they're seeing the returns that are promised the people as the pyramid builds out beneath those people are funding those unsustainable returns and as the pyramid gets bigger and bigger the people at the top they continue to make a ridiculous return on their money while the people that are lined up down below to to get in on these massive investments they're funding the actual return so there is no actual 
rate of growth. The only rate of growth is more money coming in from new investors. And this is what Luis was doing on a much smaller level. A 6% return isn't hard to to return to people over the course of, of the scheme. It's it's you know, they're giving you one hundred dollars and at the end of whatever your investment period is, you're giving them hundred and six dollars. So if you're having everybody give you a hundred dollars, it's not very hard to take money from below on that pyramid and give that extra six dollars to somebody at the top of the pyramid. And so if you're doing it at a low rate such as that, you can actually sustain it for quite a while because the investments aren't actually growing at a rate that it's difficult to pay out if people want to get their money out. What we're going to find out is the later on the, the amounts of money that Charles is turning around and promising people in order to build hype about getting those investments in makes it pretty unsustainable pretty quick. But even in his buddy Luis's case, eventually the money runs out and the bottom falls out. Investors stopped getting paid and showed up in force to demand their money back. New investors lost all of their money and Luis fled to Mexico and Charles and a partner took over the sinking business. So again, once the money runs out, the people at the top, they stop getting their investment and sometimes they don't take out their investment. They just think they're making money that $106 will turn into more and more money over time. So a lot of the times it's not until a bunch of people want their money out all at once and the fund can't support it that it collapses. And as that occurs, Luis takes off to Mexico and Charles had agreed to watch over Luis's family and the 26-year-old man fell in love with Luis's 17-year-old daughter. And the two may have gotten married if it wasn't for a bad check written by Charles that broke open the dam and sent a flood of federal investigators to the bank. Luis was arrested in Mexico, and Charles and him were reunited in a Canadian prison. They were convicted of fraud, and Charles was sentenced to three years in a federal Canadian prison. This was not a posh, white-collar, minimum security prison like some future American fraudsters would spend their time. Charles would later describe the conditions as more like a dungeon, and his bed was made of corn leaves and corn cobs in a sack. His first job was breaking rocks, and while he had done his best to avoid manual labor on the outside of prison, he found he was actually very proficient at it. His work effort gained him several promotions, and before he was released, he had a cushy job as a clerk in the warden's office. Charles actually was asked to type his own pardon letter and was released from prison after serving three years. Charles left prison with $5 to his name, twice what he had arrived with in Boston seven years earlier, but he was starting over again. He found employment even more difficult this time around because of his prison record. Eventually, his knowledge of both English and French landed him a job smuggling Italian immigrants from French areas of Canada to America. Within a few months, he was caught and sentenced to two years and one month in a U.S. federal prison in Atlanta, Georgia. Thanks to his ability to speak three languages, he landed a translation job and didn't have to do much manual labor. The prison housed a couple of high-ranking Italian mafia members, and Charles was assigned to translate their mail for the warden. He was also asked to make friends with the Italian prisoners to gain information. And while he didn't gain information to help the warden, he did learn a great deal about white-collar crime. Another prisoner named Charles Morse became a mentor for Charles Ponzi, as the one-time Wall Street baker had helped engineer a false rise in copper prices that led to the Wall Street Panic of 1907. Charles Ponzi, already aware of banking practices from his time in Montreal, learned the ins and outs of Wall Street and realized the amount of money flowing through New York created massive opportunity for investment. 
After being released from prison, he found employment as a nurse at a mining camp in Boston and soon started his own utility company that supplied power and water to the mining camps in the area. This business may have taken off, but after a freak accident severely burned another nurse, Charles volunteered to donate some of his skin to replace the burned skin of his co-worker. His wounds became infected and he lost his job and was back on the street and working menial jobs for food and lodging. In 1917, he met a woman named Rose Maria Gnecco, and after a year, the two were married. Her father ran a small grocery stand in Boston, and he took over the family business, but his lack of business practice bankrupted the family store. Charles then came up with an idea to sell international advertising and approached a bank requesting a $2,000 loan to start his company. The bank turned him down, and Charles was once again in need of a plan to make his millions. With his mastery of three major European languages, Charles still felt he could do something in America that had ties to Europe. He set up a small office in Boston in the summer of 1919 and reached out to wealthy people in Europe trying to sell some of his business ideas and gain capital. While most didn't write back, one Spanish company sent him a reply and included an international reply coupon, or an IRC. The coupon was basically an international version of prepaid postage and could be exchanged in the country the postage was sent to for the correct value of postage. In simple terms, and using today's postage rates, it costs $1.50 to send a standard letter from the U.S. to anywhere in the world. Using the IRC rules that were in place in 1919, someone could purchase that same postage coupon in Spain, for example, at $1.00. The IRC that was purchased for $1 in Spain could then be exchanged in America for $1.50, which would be a profit increase of 50%. Charles saw an opportunity to purchase IRCs in economically weak countries and cash them in for higher percentage gains. His home country of Italy, suffering greatly after World War I, had such a weak economy that Charles calculated his profits from IRCs could net over 400% return. So we'll take a break here kind of explain these IRCs just a little bit more. In case you didn't follow along with that, basically, if you were going to be communicating internationally with another company and they wanted to send you a letter, they could buy the postage in Spain. But the problem is, is when that postage came to America, it, in the case that I brought it to today's values, they would be sending you a postage stamp that they had paid a dollar for. So if you tried to use that postage stamp in America, it wouldn't be enough postage to actually send the letter from America to Spain. So you would exchange that in for a postage stamp worth $1.50, and then you would now have enough postage to send your new postage from America back to Spain. So basically, this was a legal way. I guess people just either hadn't thought of it, or eventually we'll talk about why it's it doesn't make sense for people to do this, but it was a legal way for people to basically make money off of coupons back in 1919. And so Charles sees his opportunity, but he realizes you know, he has no money and he can't just go out and purchase thousands of dollars worth of these coupons like he needs to in order to get a return on them. So since he lacked the capital to make these large enough purchases of IRCs to make the venture profitable, he approached banks once again looking for a loan. He was again turned down, and as a last resort, he created a public company called the Securities Exchange Company and traveled around Boston explaining his legal money-making plan and promising a 100% return on their money in 90 days. 
This was 95% higher than the standard 5% return offered by banks at the time. So basically, he was guaranteeing people that if they gave him $100, within 90 days, they would get $200 back from him. And again, with these schemes, a lot of the times, he's not actually going to pay out that $200 in 90 days. He is going to send them a letter saying, hey, just so you know, your investment is now worth $200. If you don't contact us, we will reinvest this $200 for you. And in 90 days, it's going to be worth $400. So people are seeing this ridiculous return on their money. They're basically doubling their money every three months if they use his company. And 18 people invested a total of $1,800 into the company in January of 1920. As word spread of a company offering a chance to double your money in 90 days, more investors lined up to pour their life savings into the company. While Charles hadn't actually made any money off IRCs, he used the money coming in from the new investors to pay off the 18 original investors with double their money. As word spread about these original investors seeing the promised return, more and more investors put their money into Charles' company. His original idea of making money off IRCs proved to be logically impractical. In order to return 400% profit, he would need to buy IRCs by the steamship full and have them sent over by the hundreds of thousands and turned in individually for profit. While the math checked out, the plan was fatally flawed, but that wasn't stopping Charles. By March of 1920, his company had taken in roughly $70,000 in investments, equivalent to almost $400,000 today. He expanded his company and hired agents and set up offices throughout New England and New Jersey. By May, his total investments were $420,000, over $6 million in today's money. And by June, that number had skyrocketed to $2.5 or $37 million in today's money. So again, remember, he promised people investments doubling in 90 days. So there's going to be a little bit of a slow growth because it's going to take those first few months for people to actually realize those profits. But once those profits are realized by the original investors, that's going to assure the next generation of investors that this is a legitimate investment because they're seeing people get this money back after 90 days. Again, most people aren't actually physically getting their money back. They're just reinvesting it, but they're going to see these letters saying, hey, just so you know, your $100 investment is now worth $200 and we can reinvest it for you. So now people are lining up to throw their money into this investment fund, taking out mortgages on their houses and getting money any way they can because every dollar, every cent they can put in there is doubling in, in 90 days. Seven months into his scheme, Charles' company was taking in over a million dollars a day, which is almost $14 million in today's money. He now had branches all the way up the East Coast to Maine, and while many original investors had increased their investments, many did not opt to get paid out, but instead would reinvest their money, creating what they believed to be an unlimited growth of their personal wealth. So again, let's, let's just say you're, you're not investing $100. Let's say you're going to invest... I think one guy invested $10,000, which would be the equivalent of roughly $150,000 today. So if you're the guy that invests $150,000 today, if you believe three months from now that that $150,000 is now going to be worth $300,000, and if you reinvest it, that $300,000 is now going to be worth $600,000 in another three months, this is how people got caught in the trap of just leaving their money in there thinking, they're making so much money. I mean, 
in, in half a year, you've made $450,000 on a $150,000 investment. So people are seeing this thinking, I just have to ride this for as long as I can and I'll be rich, I'll be set, I'll, I'll pull out my money once it reaches a certain point or, or however they thought about it. But basically, he's able to just keep dumping money into uh, this bank and, and keep the, the fund growing. And Charles purchased the controlling shares of a bank in Boston and kept his growing fortune in the bank and therefore there was no public paper trail for people to follow. If they had, they would have seen that the plan was actually losing money. Charles owed millions to early investors who had been promised double return on their money. Those that did cash out could get paid as the fund had plenty of money coming in, but if enough of the investors asked for their money at once, the scheme would not only go broke, they would owe millions more than they were obligated to pay. And and again, that's because even though this fund is has whatever be thirty seven million dollars in it, they owe investors probably forty five to sixty million dollars at this point. So yes, they can afford to pay maybe half of the investors, but the other half aren't going to get anything if people come looking for their money. And that's why he purchased this bank is because if anybody did the simple math they would realize that, but he still had this sales pitch going on that it wasn't the money coming in that was creating this 100% return, it was these IRCs. He was using the money that was coming in to buy the IRCs, and then he was using that money to return a up to 400% profit, which meant there should be more than enough money in the fund, even if everybody wanted their money back at once, they should all be able to get the money back because he should have been making 400% profit on the money coming in. And many of the investors in the first months of the scheme were hardworking Bostonians to include everyone from Boston police officers, which roughly 75% of them invested in Charles' company. The paper boys had invested a few dollars at a time. Many of Charles's closest friends and family members invested their money and Charles never once advised them that the investment was a scam. The man who had arrived in Boston in 1903 with $2.50 in his pocket had become one of the richest men in 1920 Boston. His meteoric rise to riches was based on a fragile house of cards that was going to crumble one day, and Charles knew it. He decided to live the good life while he could and bought a mansion in Lexington, Massachusetts, complete with an acre of land and a carriage house. He bought one of the most expensive automobiles at the time to park in that carriage house and enjoyed swimming in his heated pool which was also an extreme luxury at the time. His mother, an on-again, off-again supporter of her son, was so proud of his newfound wealth, and in early 1920, he paid for a first-class ticket for her to come live with Rose and him in the mansion. She died during his company's rise to fame, and Charles promised to donate $100,000, or roughly $1.5 million today, to an Italian orphanage in her name. But while Charles was enjoying a life where he could spend or promise to spend whatever he wanted, Journalists were growing more and more suspicious of his company's apparent ability to make money grow on trees. Charles attempted to create legitimate financial profits by buying a pasta factory and part of an Italian wine company, but standard business profit does not grow nearly as fast as the investment return he had promised. His legitimate pursuits did pay off, though, as one journalist took a risk and published a story trying to expose the illegitimate side of Charles's business. The article lacked solid evidence, and Charles's lawyers sued the journalist and newspaper for libel, and a judge awarded Charles $500,000, or roughly $7 million in today's money. 
The massive civil penalty kept many other journalists and newspapers who had been investigating Charles's company from printing their stories, and the delay in reporting allowed Charles to take in more investment money in July of 1920. The article had done some damage, and some investors wanted out. A small run on the company was quickly stopped as Charles paid the investors what he owed them, but then told them they couldn't invest anymore. Other investors, wanting to keep making double their money, declined to join the run. So basically, this investigative journalist is smelling something foul going on with Charles's company. They believe there is no way that they can be making the return on investments they're claiming they're making. From a business side, it just doesn't make any sense. So they jump the gun. They want to be the first to run a story on, on what was one of the talking points of Boston at the time. And they do so without getting solid evidence. And Charles is able to stand by these IRCs and these couple legitimate businesses that he has and say, hey, look, I'm making this money. What you're saying is false. You don't have evidence of it. It's libel. And the judge agreed, which then caused any other newspapers at the time that were investigating him to kind of pump the brakes and say, yeah, until we have some really solid evidence here, we are not going to go after uh, Charles Ponzi. We're going to make sure we take our time and do this right. And that taking their time and doing it right allowed a longer window for people to, to keep dumping their money into the fund. And then even the people that did want to get their money out, Charles was like, yeah, you can have your money out, but then you can't invest it anymore. So the people had to make a choice. It wasn't like they could take out you know, $200,000 and then say, hey, but I'll, I'll put another 50000 back into the fund. Maybe Charles would have taken it. It seemed like he was willing to take people's money, but he had to kind of scare people away from coming and trying to get their money out. And one way to do that was to tell them they couldn't invest anymore. And that created the people that are that forced people to make this decision do i keep getting this ridiculous return of profit on the money that i have in there or do i take it out and then i lose you know i have to go back to a regular bank getting my five percent it's going to take me 20 times as long to get that return on that investment through a regular bank so for the time being that one article actually made charles a lot of money through the civil lawsuit and there was a small run but he's able to sustain it. And while articles against Charles' company were on a holding pattern, one article printed by the Boston Post on July 24, 1920 had confirmed with several investors that they were seeing high returns on their investments and seemed to corroborate Charles's claims. So this led to another massive round of investors dumping their cash into Charles' company. So while you have one article that is questioning what's going on here, that article gets quashed by this civil lawsuit, you have another article that goes out, finds some people, and seems to find evidence that people are getting returns on their investment, whether it be people that took their money out and, and got the promised return on investment, or of these notes that were being sent to them from the bank saying, hey, your account has grown by 100% because you've been in 90 days. It looks legitimate from the outside, so the newspaper runs an article saying, yeah, Despite what that other article said, this looks legitimate, which then tells people, hey, this is safe. I'm going to go dump a bunch of my money into this, this fund. I, I want to get in on this doubling my money as well. 
And shortly after this new round of investments, the state of Massachusetts started getting suspicious and assigned investigators to look into the company books. Charles met with the investigators and assured them his company was legit and offered to stop taking in investments during the investigation. This satisfied the investigators and they agreed to give Charles some time to prepare his books for inspection. The Boston Post, the same paper that had just printed an article in support of Charles' company, secretly assigned several reporters to investigate the company surreptitiously. Within two days, the investigative reporters had exposed a rather large crack in the company's public image. Charles had continued to say his main form of revenue was profit made off the exchanges of the IRCs. And while the math did check out for people, a mathematician pointed out that in order to return profits on the millions that Charles had taken in with his company, he would have needed to procure and exchange 160 million IRCs in the last six months. Even if that was logistically possible, which it wasn't, I think it said it would have taken several Titanic-sized vessels to bring over 160 million of these IRCs. The truth was there's only 27,000 of these coupons in worldwide circulation. So Charles's plan was proven to be logistically impossible, and with solid proof of the deception behind his company, the Post ran a new series of articles on July 26th exposing the massive fraud. The newspapers hit investors' doorsteps, and within days, a massive run on the investment fund occurred. Charles met with investors outside his bank and ensured everyone that the reporters were wrong and that their money was safe. He agreed to pay out to several investors who refused to take no for an answer, and after seeing some investors paid out, the remainder of the crowd agreed to keep their investments with the bank. But the articles and the run on the bank had caught the attention of Daniel Gallagher, a U.S. attorney assigned to Massachusetts. He ordered a federal audit of Charles's books, and it was soon discovered there were no books, just index cards with names and contact information. Charles attempted to hire a publicist to control the negative press, but after less than a day with Charles, the publicist realized the magnitude of the scam and went to the Boston Post and sold information he gained about the illegitimacy of Charles's businesses for $5,000 to the Post. The article, this time including actual numbers, such as the company being roughly $4.5 million in the red, led to yet another run on the investment fund. Charles was able to pay off this one last run, but was essentially bankrupt and started writing checks from the bank's line of credit. Another investigation was launched and it was discovered that Charles' company was now about $7 million in debt and using the bank's line of credit to stay afloat. By August 11th, the Post was running stories about the massive fraud and they had discovered Charles's criminal past to include his much smaller fraud scam in Montreal. Charles learned that he was going to be arrested any day for mail fraud and turned himself into authorities so he could pay bail and return home. He paid the bail on his federal charges and then state authorities arrested him on separate charges and he paid bail on that as well. The Boston Post advised the courts that they were going to print more articles that didn't favor Charles and he might try to leave the country. Bail was revoked and Charles was placed in prison and soon faced 86 counts of mail fraud. So basically what he was ultimately charged with was sending those letters to his investors claiming that they had doubled their money because his business model proved that to be inaccurate. If anything, they had a 0% return and beyond that charles was spending their money on his mansion on his car on his heated pool so the company was losing money but 
he had sent out enough of these letters to people saying, hey, you know, just that thousand you gave me, you know, I have 2,000. And then if they were an original investor, they would have gotten another letter roughly in June or July saying that that 2,000 turned into 4,000. So because he had mailed them the letters, it became a federal crime of mail fraud, and he's charged with these 86 counts. And as the counts each carried a five-year sentence and the federal courts allowed for consecutive sentences, Charles was facing life in prison for his crimes. However, amazingly, he was allowed to plead guilty to a single count of mail fraud and was sentenced to just five years in federal prison. While in prison in 1922, he was indicted on additional charges by the Massachusetts Attorney General. He was now facing state charges of larceny, but Charles argued that his plea agreement with the feds had erased his state charges. However, the actual arrangement in the deal said nothing about the state charges, and Charles had inaccurately assumed the federal charges trumped the state charges, and he wouldn't be tried for both via double jeopardy. The case made it all the way to the Supreme Court in 1922, and the Supreme Court ruled the two judicial systems were different, and Charles could be charged by both the state and the federal government. As for the double jeopardy, Charles was charged with mail fraud by the feds and larceny by the state, so despite the charges being from the same crime, the Supreme Court did not consider it double jeopardy. And this goes well beyond my legal understanding of, of things. Uh, the way it was explained in the article is, even though this was the same crime, because they were different elements to these crimes, it wasn't like he was getting charged with mail fraud by the state of Massachusetts and by the federal government. Basically, the way I understood from the article, the only way you're safe from double jeopardy is if you're tried for a specific crime by a specific jurisdiction, whether it be federal or state, you get acquitted, and then they try to try, try to put you on trial for the same exact charges again, that would be double jeopardy. They can't just keep trying you until they get a conviction. But if they're different charges, even stemming from the same event, especially from different jurisdictions, you can be charged by both the federal and the state. And so despite him basically escaping justice for the most part, he was going to do roughly less time for his this massive fraud than he did in Canada for the, a much smaller fraud. The state's going to come down and say, no, we're going to we're going to charge you as well. And the public was actually somewhat split on Charles Ponzi. Some of his investors, especially the ones smart enough to take their investments during the scheme, supported him, while others, especially those who lost their life savings, vilified him. Charles went through three state trials before being found guilty of larceny and sentenced to an additional nine years in prison. And this is where I found it strange, because in his state trials, it said in the article I read that he was acquitted the first time around because he was able to convince the jury using his charisma that what he had done wasn't stealing from anybody and the jury bought it and acquitted him and it didn't explain how but he was put on trial a second time which resulted this time in a hung jury and the third time he was put on trial he was found guilty so i don't know how that isn't double jeopardy if he's acquitted the first time around unless there was some type of an appeal or a miscarriage of justice that the courts ruled that he could be put on trial again. I just have always understood if you're acquitted, you can't be tried again. So while I understood it on the two, the federal state charges, I didn't understand how he got tried three times after being acquitted the first time on, on the larceny charges. But he's going to be found guilty of larceny and sentenced to an additional 
nine years in prison. He was released from prison in 1934, having served 14 years for his crime. Public sentiment, driven by the stock market crash and the Great Depression, had turned on Charles completely, and most people were now calling for him to be deported. So if you remember, in his, American history, you know, when he's going through his original trial, when he's kind of going through this stuff, this is, a, this is the Roaring Twenties. This is a time of parties and speakeasies and all kinds of different things going on in, in the, the 20s. And there is a lot of money flowing through the country. The, the stock market is doing well. All up until while he's in prison, you have the, the stock market crash of, of 1929. And thus you enter into the Great Depression. So by the time he's getting out of prison, the country's in pretty bad financial shape. And everybody remembers he's the guy that basically robbed a whole bunch of people, lived this lavish lifestyle. He owned and ran a bank. So he's basically everything that people don't like at this point. And so people called for him to be deported. He fought for a full pardon and fought his deportation, but he lost both battles. On October 7th, 1934, roughly 31 years after arriving in America, Charles was sent back to Italy. Rose, his wife, stayed in America and divorced him in 1937, and then Charles attempted to build a new scheme in Italy but failed. He finally found legitimate employment via the Italian airline Alla Latoria and was stationed in Brazil but the airline was shut down by the Allies during World War II and Charles was laid off. He suffered a heart attack soon after, and while he survived the heart attack, he was left severely weak and could only find occasional work as a translator. Even this proved difficult as he started losing his eyesight, and by 1948 he was blind and then suffered a stroke that left him paralyzed on his left side. One of the richest men in the world in 1920 died penniless at a charity hospital in Brazil on January 18, 1949. The scheme that made Charles Ponzi famous is either called a pyramid scheme or a Ponzi scheme, has been reported count, repeated countless times over the last century. And just to be hack, accurate here, Charles Ponzi was not the first person to come up with this scam. I mean, clearly, even his buddy up in Montreal was, did it before he did. There was several other somewhat large Ponzi schemes that occurred uh, in the 1800s. But he really took it to a new level in 1920, and he did it so quickly to, to such an amount that that's how it got named a Ponzi scheme. And the three largest Ponzi schemes in U.S. recorded history include Tom Petters in Minnesota, who defrauded investigators of $3.7 billion, R. Allen in Texas, who scammed $7 billion, and the most famous of all, Bernie Madoff, who created a Ponzi scheme that ripped off $20 billion. Plenty of banks and companies have also pulled off similar schemes, and many different cryptocurrencies in recent years have been described as unregulated Ponzi schemes. While Charles's adjusted numbers of just over $200 million pale in comparison to more recent losses, his ability to get incredibly rich in a short amount of time made his crime a household name. Just before he died, in summary, he told the reporter that he had given the American people the best show that had been staged since the landing of the Pilgrims, and it was worth $15 million to watch him make it happen. He was a man filled with ambition, but devoid of morals, and while his name lives on, his legacy is one of greed and theft. But that is the story of the birth of the Ponzi scheme. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes, and feel free to write me at trueblucrimeproductions at gmail.com. 
You can also find me at True Blue Crime Productions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at True Blue Crime Productions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.